Welcome to The Sacred Everything, a podcast that explores what the world would look like if we treated ourselves, our communities, and the natural environment as sacred. We seek out to illuminate the root causes of society's biggest issues, like climate change and social injustice. We meet the leaders of a practical revolution whose little tweaks on everyday life could bring healing to humanity. I'm Travis, and with my co-host Dennis, Join us as we meet the pioneers of personal healing, nature reconnection, and revival of community life. Here's to a more beautiful world. And I think that lots and lots of people were starting to feel the lack of what we're genetically created to do and feel and want. And so what is the joy that you can create for yourself to be of true service to others in a way that's really benefiting them? Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Sacred Everything. Today, we are talking to Diana Leaf Christian about the do's and don'ts, goods and bads, challenges and opportunities of intentional communities. Diana's work over the last 30 years has focused on intentional communities and community living, including especially the process of starting successful new communities. Her work addresses the perennial question of, how do we thrive in our communities without stagnating from indecision and conflict? The implications for the world are huge. She is the author of two books, Creating a Life Together and Finding Community, and former editor of Communities Magazine. She has contributed chapters in several books on eco-villages and written articles on communities for various magazines and newsletters. She is a board member of Global Eco-Village Network U.S. In 2017, she received the Federation of Intentional Communities' Jeff Kazeni Lifetime Achievement Award for her work in communities internationally. Diana, what is an intentional community? Well, the way I see it and how I have learned it through being involved in the communities movement in the U.S. is that it's when a group of people uh, either live together on the same piece of land or somehow share land and housing, or maybe they just live really quite close and adjacent to each other, or maybe they all live in the same town, but what they have is a common purpose, something they want to accomplish together. That is, their community is about something. It's not just to live in community. So one example might be to have a great neighborhood where it's a real pleasure and safe and warm and friendly to raise your children or grow older together. And that's a good description of co-housing communities. Another kind of community, urban, rural, or in between, might be to learn how to live more ecologically sustainably and share what you're learning with other people uh, by classes and workshops and tours. And that's a pretty good description of an eco-village. So those are two different kinds of communities with two different kinds of purposes for being there. So once again, a community is where a group of people live together or at least close enough to each other, possibly on shared land, possibly in adjacent or shared housing, to carry out a common purpose. There's two kinds regarding economy. One kind, you pay the community to join it, and you pay annual dues and fees in order to maintain it. And these are independent income communities. This is most communities in the West. And that is you make your money however you do. You earn your money through a job or whatever you do. And you spend it, save it, invest it, and so on, however you want. 
Then there are income sharing communities, often called communes. And um, this is where the community pays you. You join the community. Usually there's no joining fee whatsoever. You work in the community businesses, if you have some, and then you earn a little stipend. You get room and board, but any money that's earned by the business goes into the community's common pot. Or everyone in the community goes out and works, and they bring their wages and their salaries home and put them in the common pot. So when somebody says commune, technically that's what they mean, an income sharing community. There's very few of these in the US and Canada. They used to be more common than they are now. Nowadays, when people start a new community, generally it's an independent income community. In my opinion, uh, they tend to function more better. They tend to be easier to join um, and easier to live in. If you join an income sharing commune, the benefit is you can join when you're 17 and have no skills yet. And the downside is if you join with a shirt on your back, when you leave 25 years later, what do you have to take with you? That very old worn out shirt. (laughs) In other words, you don't build equity and you don't have anything you can take. You can't send your kids to college. You can't buy a new truck. You can't get your teeth fixed unless the community is willing to spring for that expense. And are they? I'm curious, um, maybe this is just your personal opinion. Perhaps this isn't the expert speaking, but your lived experience. Uh, Having had a very powerful personal experience through the qualities at Earth Haven, a la connection with nature, a la intergenerational living and seeing community alive all the time, what are some of the impacts on the individual within an intentional community that may have these these aspects that um, more or less are are getting pushed out of Western lives, right? We have a lot of senior assisted living facilities. We have nine to nine jobs that keep parents away from their kids for most of the day. Um, kids that don't get to play together in the wild. And I, I saw all this and, and I'm just wondering, is there repeatable or just your personal experience that intentional communities either heal from a so intensely individualistic Western kind of mindset, or at least beautiful things that you see and you've experienced yourself along the lines? Well, when I was writing my second book, which is called Finding Community, and it's a guide to how to um, research, visit, and choose enjoying an intentional community. And my joke is, which is harder, um, creating a new community or researching, visiting, choosing, and joining one? And the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was researching that book, um, it didn't take too much research for me to come up with seven benefits of community, but I, I had to go wider than just myself. And I did. And I found that there was widespread agreement about at least these seven things, which I'll tell you. So one is that living in community is more environmentally sound for you personally and the whole community because of all the ways you can buy things in bulk. You only need to have one tractor or or just a few, if you're a big rural community like us, just a few chainsaws. You don't need every single person to have one. There's all kinds of ways you're consuming less and you're benefiting the planet because you have shared agreements about what we're going to do and not do to the planet here in our little tiny piece of the planet. So it's more environmentally sound, not for all communities and not in all cases. Um, it's also safer to live in community. You've got more eyes 
looking out of windows and being in yards to see all of us, to see all of our kids. I can walk on the roads at Earth Haven at 3 a.m. in the dark. Maybe I have a flashlight or maybe I'm just looking at the moon and uh, I'm perfectly safe. Although I have to keep from stepping on a snake. So I have to look down, you know, and I might meet a bear. So, but other than snakes and bears, I'm perfectly fine with foxes and squirrels and raccoons and hedgehogs. But, you know, all of us are looking out for each other and we're all here and we're all available and we help each other all the time in so many ways. And one of the ways is it's really hard to not be very safe here in a group this big with this many people. The same is true no matter the size of the community. However, the smaller the community and the more it is urban, the less true this is. But it's still more true that you're more safe than if you lived on your own in an apartment in a city or you lived on your own or with your family in a house somewhere. It's, there's more safety because you're in community. Uh, it's healthier. And it's not just healthier because you might be buying your organic food in bulk or because you have the shared value. Let's eat local from local organic farmers and support local farmers. And we know the farmers and we know what's going into the feed for the livestock or we know how what the, what's the soil amendments going into the ground. Besides that, there's all kind of studies that show if you have frequent, beneficial, friendly interactions with other people throughout the day, or they're not even friendly, they're just interactions at all. It, it improves your health. And the older you are, the truer that is. Your immune system goes up. Your heart and circulation and digestive systems function better if you are in the milieu of people that you know that you either see or you say hello to. Now, that is really pretty significant because if you compare it to a lifestyle that is not in community, most people have fewer connections with other people other than who you see at work. And maybe you don't see them at work anymore because you're working from home. <laughs> maybe dressing up in order to work from home. But still, if you have people in your household, you know, your spouse and family and friends and kids, or you have housemates, well, that means you're going to be more healthy. But if you lived alone and in a city, that's in quite a contrast to living in community regarding the social interactions that stimulate your immune system and make you healthier. And it's a whole lot cheaper not to join, but in terms of month-to-month -month expenses, if you're sharing resources, buying things in volume, and so on. This is less true in co-housing in a city and more true in a rural community like where I live. I would say it's more satisfying. And I think, Travis, when you were here, you got that sense. Um, it can be very wonderful to be in a milieu that is safe, beautiful, rural, or if urban, it's got nice amenities, and you know the people, and when you see them, you're glad to see them, and they're glad to see you. And there's a certain kind of goodwill going on. Boy, is that satisfying. Um, you grow as a person, <laughs> one way or the other. Um, you might learn new skills, like what I can do now is I can pour concrete and screed it. I can't do it by myself, but I actually know what the word screed means and I know how to do it. And so, you know, like, where would I have ever learned that? I can plaster a wall. I can do all kinds of things. I can take minutes for a meeting. I can uh, facilitate a meeting in two or three different kinds of meeting processes. And so you, you learn skills like that, uh, but you also learn where you've got big faults. Oops, 
where you've got blind spots, where you've got trauma or karma or like issues because your fellow community members will tell you one way or the other. And then when you find that out, you have the choice to be mad at them or think, well, that's your problem, or this is just the way I am, live with it. Or you can think, hmm, maybe I ought to do something about that. And ideally you do. So the feedback in community can be so beneficial for your growth. So I call it the rock polisher effect, because you know how rock polishers work. Those rocks get polished not because you put some polish in that thing, but because you put other rocks in there. So, so Travis, you and I, with our rough edges, you know, we get into community together. We, we rub our rough, rough edges on each other. And after a while, we're smoother rocks, you and me both, because we were in community with each other. So that's kind of how it works. And uh, lastly, it's a whole lot more fun. Seventh benefit that I like to describe is that that's kind of the same as you're growing. And that's kind of the same as um, it's more satisfying, but actual literal fun hilarious activities that make you laugh and make you filled with joy. That happens too. Much more likely in a community because you can organize people to do things. Skit night, movie night, crazy costume night, Halloween parties, um, all kinds of fun things you can do. And we do here and many communities do. They have a really good time. One of the best reasons for living in an intentional community. This kind of reminds me of the um... Richard Florida work on creative economy that cities are effectively more intellectually or creatively productive because you have a high interaction quotient among most people. So you could apply the the logic, you know, that within a community, the the fun quotient is higher because really just availability is there. Oh, yes. That's a great observation. I think that's a very good way to put it. Once I watched this TV show called Dobie Gillis back in the late 50s and early 60s. And there was this woman who was just sure that because she saw Dobie Gillis every day, he would fall in love with her. And the word she used was propinquity, which I think is a real word. I never forgot that word because I used to watch the show when I was a kid, you know. And she says, you're going to fall in love with me, Dobie, because of propinquity. And so she would see him every day. Well, we see each other every day. And not, not only are we mostly, most of the time in love with each other, but we come up with way fun things to do. Why? Propinquity. <laughs> propinquity. Love it. I've heard you speak about the difficulties of community life and attending to community life while adhering to a Western picture of society. It reminds me of the, of the Protestant work ethic, even. Are intentional communities mostly a Western phenomenon? Yes and no. Let me just randomly go around the world, okay? Not so much on Arctica, but pretty much everywhere else. Uh, the governments of Vietnam and China themselves are interested in eco-villages. It's not a big movement, but they're generally government-sponsored because those are centralized government kinds of places. There are some co-housing communities and at least one rural organic farming spiritual community in Japan. There are communities in Bangladesh and India and Southeast Asia and the Philippines, very much stimulated by permaculture designers in the global eco-village uh, network region called Genoa, which means um, Gen Oceania Asia. So a lot of times Australian permaculture teachers will travel to the other countries that they're not so far from in Southeast Asia and teach permaculture and uh, eco-village design. Okay, Europe, filled with eco-villages. 
Australia, you can't spit without hitting an eco village. Well, I'm kidding. But in Australia, there's there's been a huge intentional communities movement for years, for years and years, like in the U.S. and Canada. Okay, there are eco villages in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Western Africa, uh, because many of the people from those countries go to Europe with scholarships to learn eco-village design and other things, and Europeans go there to uh, be helpful to the folks. Many villages in Africa are suffering from, they've lost their economic base, they've lost their cultural base because so many of their young people have gone off to towns, and creating a traditional indigenous village in Africa to once again bring back their culture and get an economic base with the help maybe of European helpers for a while, uh, bringing money and some expertise and training local folks. That is going on big time, especially, say, in Senegal, where there's a Senegalese eco-village movement. Okay, let's go to um, what people in the eco-village movement call the Fertile Crescent. I have friends creating a community in Turkey, an eco-village. I taught them sociocracy online. Um, there are people in of course, Israel, but also every other Arabic Islamic country and Iran, which is Islamic but not Arabic, doing intentional communities of various kinds. Fewer, less frequently, less often than in the West, but still happening. In East Asian communities where people are Buddhists and in Tibet, there are Buddhist monasteries and there are certainly communities, and that includes dojos for Zen Buddhism, such as in Japan, and various monasteries for monks and nuns in Tibet, and that is what I am familiar with. In India, there are all kinds of ashrams where there is generally a guru, and there are people who are devotees of that guru, and they do one or more of the many spiritual practices that you'll find in India that are related to basic Hinduism, which is kind of a very broad umbrella with lots of different ways to practice it. So those are intentional communities too, as far as I would say. In the West, there are secular communities and then there are religious ones. And the religious ones, of course, are monasteries and convents. And both in Catholic and in uh, Greek Orthodox traditions. Um, there are also religious communities of Protestants, but far fewer of them in the West. Then there are spiritual communities that don't have any one religious flavor, or they have a spiritual practice that's their flavor, but it's not from a re religion necessarily. And then there's a whole bunch of communities with, who don't have a spiritual or a religious purpose but which in the community, many of the members might have a spiritual orientation and a spiritual practice and see the world as sacred, and, but not everybody. For example, at Earth Haven, I would assume that almost everybody sees the world and the biosphere as some, something absolutely worth honoring, respecting, and protecting. In your experience at Earth Haven, where, where you're positing that people do have this sense of sacred about the earth, which is worth respecting, 
enjoying with pleasure and joy and protecting. Can you see any translatable models that could go out to a mainstream society, a, a suburban neighborhood, an urban neighborhood, a rural village where um, the types of practices and the types of sort of, I don't know, to some extent, lifestyle choices could could help make the world a more beautiful place, can help uh, be translatable out into the mainstream? Well, um, I would say yes and no. And um, I'll start with the no part. <laughs> the no part is the difference between a rural village or an urban or a town neighborhood or suburban neighborhood or urban neighborhood is that the people who live there live there by chance, randomly. They didn't select themselves to work together with all their neighbors for a common purpose. They just happen to live there. They do or don't know some or all or many or none of their neighbors. They do or don't have anything in common with them other than they want to stay alive and they need to earn money and buy food and so on. But otherwise, they don't have a common purpose, really. And in intentional communities, nobody lives in the community unless they came through the membership gate, which was, do you understand what we're doing here and do you want to do it too with us? And do you meet our requirements for membership? In which case, okay, great, join us. Uh, and so there's quite a difference there. And that's why you can't exactly transfer what people do in communities to a place that isn't set up that way because it's just people living there unintentionally. I mean, they intentionally live there, but not with the other people for any common purpose, right? So that's the no part of the answer. But the yes part of the answer is any of those folks could come on a tour of Earth Haven or a tour of any community and see some practices or attitudes or behaviors or things we do that they like and that influence them and impact them. And they think, oh, I think I, I can do that when I go home. So in the realm of uh, natural building, appropriate technology, permaculture design, they could go home and do things in their home on their in their yard that might be beneficial that they learned when they visited a community in the realm of social activities and connecting they might want to start a dinner club in their neighborhood or a babysitting co-op or they might want to start a movie night or skit night invite your neighbors or a food co-op or a bicycle co-op or a car co-op there's all kind of ways that people in unintentionally lived in locations can do collaborative, congenial, connecting community type things. They can learn nonviolent communication if they want to. This would be each individual choosing to do that. They could learn restorative circles if they wanted to. They could create organizations of neighbors where they chose a decision-making method that's fair and clear and transparent and works well. They could do that if they wanted to. That's great. I appreciate that. Um, as I'm sitting with it, I think about the instantiations of community that I grew up with, a la Boy Scouts, a la, you know, my friends that went to church, even schools, right? A lot of these things serve as these informal congealing agents for, for neighbors. They just happen not to live on the same block. And it's it's been so interesting to me, the felt experience of Earth Haven, where I wake up and I walk 400 feet to go to a composting toilet in the morning, and I'm able to pick a blackberry on the way back. And the intention of sacred connection with the land there is, uh, I would say, had a, had a measurable effect on my nervous system 
I mean, I, I felt different after a month there. Like I felt more calm. I felt less anxious. I felt like time actually was less urgent. And uh, without that congealing agent of shared space and shared value, it's been hard for me to get that feeling from sort of what what maybe we can typify it as just ad hoc community things or non-locational community instances. Well, I love what you're saying, Travis, because it illustrates a couple of things. One, the intentionality here is like a container, non-physical, non-visible, but still exists, which you were in the milieu of, you were in the context of, or you might say the vibes of when you were here. Another aspect is that you were surrounded by trees in a mountain setting. You were hearing babbling brooks and birdsong, and there was dappled sunlight as you walked under the trees. And you were doing what's called forest bathing. It's an actual thing. People are asked to go be around a bunch of trees for about uh, 20 minutes and bathe in their presence, and then it calms you down. There's like measurable neurological research, apparently, that shows that when you're in nature in any way, it calms you down. Also, there's research that shows if you're wearing shoes of leather but not vinyl or rubber, or you're barefoot on the earth, or you're touching the earth with some part of your body, or some clothes that are natural materials, not synthetic, you're getting earth energy, and the frequency of the earth, which is like a big, deep, slow heartbeat, calms you down, little human on its surface. So you were doing all those things, Travis. So it's no wonder you really liked that and that you wouldn't find it where you are living now necessarily. Diana, what is your what is your background in your current practice in intentional communities? I was curious to know how communities got started successfully. I inquired into that back in 1990 when I started. And um, I found that 90% of new community startups in the U.S., which is where I was looking, failed. And only 10% seemed to get off the ground where the people actually landed on their property and started living together in community and functioning for at least some years. And I wanted to know why, because I'm curious and I have a background as a reporter, but not a very big background, just kind of a, I studied it for a year in high school. I was the editor of my high school paper. Then I wrote articles for magazines and that's all. I mean, it's not like a big career in journalism, but I had the context of interviewing people and asking questions and trying to understand patterns, you know, like a permaculture designer would do, observe the landscape, see the patterns. And I wanted to know what the patterns were of human organization in communities that seemed to function well as compared to that 90%, which would end up in conflict and heartbreak and sometimes also lawsuits. So this was really kind of impelling to me or compelling. I mean, I wanted to know what worked and what didn't. And I found that the communities that were successful were doing certain important things and the communities that were failing were not doing those things. So I happened to get hired with my journalistic background as the editor of Communities Magazine, which was being run by the FIC, which in those days was called the Fellowship for Intentional Community, now the Foundation for Intentional Community. That's what the F stands for now. Anyway, they had a very, very, very part-time job being the editor of Communities Magazine, which they had just acquired. And it was only a quarterly publication and not that many um, people read it, really. So I had this charming, delightful, little tiny part-time job. And it was a total 
education for me in everything about community. Because I read all the articles that came in and I read all the ones we used because I edited them and then I read all the ones we didn't use. And then I would go to communities at the on the dime of the FIC who would fly me to their annual board meetings, their biannual board meetings, which would be held in a different community each time. So I got to meet all kinds of people in all kinds of communities, including my favorite ones I always wanted to visit ever since the 1960s and 70s when I thought, ooh, ooh, community, but I didn't think I could ever do that. So I got quite a fabulous education thanks to the FIC and thanks to Communities Magazine. And so what I did was I thought somebody ought to let other people know what does and doesn't work in forming communities so that more than just 10% could be successful. So you know that giant, deep, baritone voice in the universe and that giant finger when you say somebody ought to, and then it kind of spins around and points at you and says, you. And I thought, me, I can't write a book. And, I, and then I heard sort of in my head, oh, sure you can. It's just like magazine articles. You can do that. You just put a couple of them together in a row. So I wrote 18 magazine articles, as it were, with pull quotes and sidebars and everything, and sent it off to a publisher, and they said, oh my gosh, we need a book like this. So now, Creating a Life Together has been translated into seven languages, which tells me it was the right book at the right time. The people around the world want it because they want to know this, you know. Anyway, that's my background in this. And so what do I do? Well, I'm writing another book right now on how to use sociocracy specifically in intentional communities because it's a little different than using it in businesses. And there's certain things that happen in communities that I'm addressing. If this happens, you can apply it this way. If that happens, you can apply it that way, which isn't true for businesses. So this will be a specialty book for communities. I teach workshops on how to start new communities, how to help your current community be successful and thriving and how to do sociocracy. I can also teach consensus, but I try to talk the people who want to hire me for that into considering sociocracy instead. And I used to do this in in-person workshops. Now with the virus, I do it on Zoom. I do it online. And I write uh, articles for Communities Magazine and other magazines. And I write chapters for books. So I'm sort of like a self-appointed advocate, informal researcher, and writer and teacher about these things these matters. That's lovely. It's fantastic that you listen to your intuition and, uh, and it, it pushed back against your brain. <laughs> your, it's like your heart and your stomach were, uh, were, were almost out of quarrel. They needed sociocracy at the time. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you for your work. Uh, it's it's clearly making ripples all around the world, and it's fantastic. And I'm a big fan, and in the fact that it has instantiated so many successful communities, and or rather helped grease the skids so that they can be successful, I think is a credit to humanity because the vibes that are coming out of these places are really, um, in my opinion, sort of the next step of human evolution. Once we figure out how to get all the electricity really clean, then we're going to have to figure out how to get along with each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, communities are figuring out how to get along. They're sort of like research and development labs for that. Um, but I want to say something about my work for a minute. A whole lot of communities have wonderful vibes and are doing it really well. And they've never heard of me and never read my book because people just sort of 
develop and learn and grow, and they're on the steep learning curve of how to do this. So I have to be honest and real. I have been able to help many groups, and some groups credit me and my book, and some groups make every new incoming member read the book, or sometimes they have a study group and go through chapter by chapter. And I really like that, but it's not that many communities compared to all of them. What kind of uh, governance models are you teaching and uh, which have been successful? One is classic traditional consensus, like what was used and created by the Quakers in England in the 1600s. And then which was really pretty much learned by the Quaker movement in the West in recent years. I call it classical traditional consensus because anybody can block a proposal and all they have to do is say for the good of the community and the community either examines that closely and they need to show how or they just let it go. And that means the proposal does not pass. So any one person can stop a proposal that everybody else wants in classic traditional consensus. As created by the Quakers, it was designed to have everybody tune in to a spiritual reality sitting in the silence is how they described it. And then whenever they would speak to stop a proposal, it was ideally and imagined that it was, you know, based on divine guidance. That's not how it has been in a whole lot of intentional communities, however. Quite often there's been blocking for personal reasons because I don't want that, or which is not supposed to be what you do. Um, or, or blocking that's kind of frivolous or maybe too frequent and too often and too frivolous. So various intentional communities have created modified forms of consensus to where everything you do in the meeting, what with the facilitator and the proposals and the agendas is the same, and you discuss the proposal and suggest modifications to it, the same as in consensus. But when it's time to do the thing called testing for consensus, um, People who block then have to do a few more things to justify that they blocked it, including in my favorite modified form that um, the people who didn't want the proposal need to get together in a series of meetings with some of the people who did and come up with a new proposal that does address the same issue. So to step back for a minute, proposals in communities or probably anywhere are created to solve a problem or to benefit from an opportunity. And sometimes that's the same. So if somebody blocks a proposal or several people block a proposal in a community, the issue is still there. We still need to solve that problem or we still need to benefit from that opportunity. So the modified forms of consensus make it harder to stop proposals and put more energy on people who want to block to help co-create a new solution. In my favorite version of this, which I call the in-street consensus method after a community in Davis, California, that's on the street with the letter in, like Nancy, um, in that community and those who follow this method, uh, if the small group of one or more who blocked the proposal and those who are for it met and they could not come up with a new proposal, the old proposal comes back for a 65% supermajority vote, which means it's very likely to pass. So now the energy is more on prove it, prove it to us why we shouldn't pass this proposal. Whereas before in classic traditional consensus is more like, oh yeah, I don't want this. Nya, 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 try and stop me. 
at least it would devolve that way. Okay, another method of decision-making is supermajority voting, which is far better than majority rule, where you can have tyranny of the majority. Up to 49% can be really unhappy with the decision and think it's a bad idea, but we still do it if we're doing majority rule voting, which is what, of course, we do all across Western countries, states, and provinces in terms of governments, right? Government for electing officials. Um, and supermajority voting is better than classic consensus where any one person could stop everything, which gets called tyranny of the minority. So halfway through, like 75% supermajority voting or 80 or 85%, which requires more people being in agreement to pass the thing, uh, is, is something I like a lot. So I recommend that as well, as, as well as the in-street method. Another method is sociocracy, which I am an advocate for and I teach, and I highly recommend to intentional communities now and any kind of member-led group. And it is a whole system of governance that includes, but is not limited to making decisions. It includes how to make proposals, how to consider and decide them, how to select people for roles in the group, how to help those people get better in roles by a thing called role improvement feedback, and uh, consenting to new incoming circle members, a step-by-step process for doing that. It also includes putting um, feedback questions in every proposal so that you can measure how well did the proposal actually solve the problem after it's implemented? How well did that proposal actually help us benefit from that opportunity after it's implemented? So it's a pretty uh, whole system, good governance system that I highly recommend, sociocracy. So some communities use that. Most use classic traditional consensus. Some communities use a modified consensus. I don't know any communities that use majority rule voting. Is sociocracy a witch's brew of a lot of the best practices into a single form? No, uh, but I can see why you might think so, because I've named so many things that it does. It was a whole system created by a Dutch electrical engineer and inventor named Gerard Indenberg back in the 1970s to help his company Indenberg Electrotechnique, which is the Dutch word for electrical company, uh, they did they installed electrical systems in business and industry, and they they did it then, and they're still doing it now. He invented a new management system for them in order to accomplish two things: one, to organize and accomplish your work tasks better and get more done; two, to have a much more harmonious system where people loved the system, loved the management, and they didn't hate it. And it worked better for everybody. So you accomplish more and everybody's happier. That's why he invented it. And sure enough, that's what it does when you use it correctly. Diana, what is the etymology of this word, sociocracy? Oh, yeah, sure. It's it's uh, <laughs> Gerard Indenberg put together both a, a Greek and Latin phrase. So socio, socio means um, the people you associate with. And ocracy means form of governance or management. So sociocracy means governance by your peers and colleagues. So if it's governance by your peers and friends, uh, then what role do children play in a sociocratic organization? Some communities might think that children would be decision makers in their meetings, like in their business meetings. This always strikes me as 
kind of strange because when I was four, I didn't know too much about good budgeting for the annual operations budget. And I don't think most small children do know that. But some communities might want to try that or do it. I think some communities have parent advocates, perhaps influenced by current day parenting practices that are somewhat different than parenting practices in the past. And they think all children should have decision-making and all input or else decision-making power on all topics. I don't think that would work very well for the group and that they would probably modify that after a while, after they had some experience. But let's say a group was going to do that. Then I imagine uh, it would work better than if they used voting or consensus. And there are organizations of children and for children where children are taught sociocracy and they use it very well and they learn it a lot faster than adults do and they catch on really quick. For example, schools, there are some schools in Australia that use it. There's the children's parliament movement in India, all across the whole giant country of India, where children's parliaments all across the country use sociocracy to make decisions and come up with projects and things they want to do to be of service to their village or to their region. There are all kinds of hand uh, schools in the Netherlands that use sociocracy with the kids. That is to say, the kids are making decisions for things about the kids. The kids might make decisions for what they ask for and request of the school or of their parents, or they might want to give input to a decision that's being considered, and they say, this is our recommendation. They'd make their decisions together using sociocracy to give their recommendation. That's fascinating. I mean, I you know, I was on student government in high school and in college and to to think that a level of rigor could could I mean, the topics that we were the topics that we were investigating were not particularly poignant. Climate change was not a big conversation back then, you know, divestment from fossil fuels was not a thing that we we had to vote for. I mean, it was. It was happening to some extent, but it wasn't as wasn't as prominent. So it's interesting to think now that um, a younger generation has has somewhere between fatalistic and uh, and world saving capability and demands on their intellect, on their psyche, on their actual positions that that these types of governance could actually help them um, to to fight stagnation and to actually get somewhere with that. What event or choice in your life brought you to focus on intentional communities? I observed that I was living in a culture that seemed to be cuckoo and stuck and upside down and backwards. We would travel in our little metal boxes on wheels on these tracks between home and the mall where we would buy things in order to make our lives rich and filled with meaning. But then we would run out of that feeling and we'd have to go back there and buy some more things because what it said on the little squawking talking box in the corner of our living room was buy these things and your life will be better. And so we're doing that, right? Or we're on a track between school and home or school and work. So we're going to work to do a job that we don't like and we don't enjoy. And we're spending some of the money on clothes so that we can do that job and on skills so we don't get fired and on the therapy that we have to get in order to deal with that. We have to have that job. Then we're in the commute little metal box with the wheels twice a day for an hour with a lot of traffic, breathing smog. If you happen to be in LA like I did. And this is life. Not only that, we're an isolated 
nuclear family America because our parents or our siblings or our cousins certainly aren't all here with us, usually. They're somewhere else, and our friends are somewhere else, and we have to make appointments to see them, and our children can't just go outside and play. They have to have play dates that are all very structured. And I began to observe that more and more people seem to find this weird. And like it didn't fit, like you're wearing some kind of closet or like ill-fitting, and you think, wow, what is this? And that more and more people were gravitating to community. And I got the sense that we have a genetic, I used to say a gene for community, but I don't think I mean that literally. A gene, I don't mean that literally. But I think we are genetically set up to be social animals, like baboons are, but like tigers are not. Some animals, some species of people in the animal kingdom, like us and other animals, are, are solitary or their flocks or herds or schools of fish sort of animals. And I think we're the kind that connects with people. And I think that lots and lots of people were starting to feel the lack of what we're genetically created to do and feel and want. And so what is the joy that you can create for yourself to be of true service to others in a way that's really benefiting them? Diana, what do you see as the future of intentional communities? Oh, boy. Uh, I think there will be more of them as time goes along. I think more people will be interested in joining them and starting them. And um, I think more initially suspicious neighbors will not be suspicious anymore when they see that the community is actually good people doing good things and that they're just valuing the same kind of things that those neighbors' grandparents valued, which is being neighborly, helping each other out, like large extended families in rural areas used to do, which is what intentional communities resemble. The um, suspicion of neighbors is greater if it's a rural place. The more rural, the greater the suspicion. The more it is the people in the rural area are Uh, fundamentalist Christians, the more suspicion they will have until they might learn, oh, they're really okay. And the more it is in the American South, the truer that is. The farther South you go, the more true that may be. We here at Earth Haven have great neighbors. I mean, besides our neighbors who are just exactly like us and values and vision and practices, and they just live nearby. Besides that, um, we have rural Appalachian neighbors, you know, descendants of Scots-Irish people who came over here from the borderlands of Scotland and Ireland in the 1700s. And um, if you just think bluegrass music and mountain music and corncob pipes and people on rocking chair on the front porch of their cabin, that's that's who our other neighbors are pretty much. Um, And they like us because they see us working hard outdoors. And they tease us a little bit. And they say things like, well, hell, it took us 40-some years to get indoor plumbing and you all piss outside. (laughs) So they tease us. You know, they like us. At the eco-village that you participate in, Earth Haven, how did you all organize yourselves into the respective 
uh, specializations that are required to run in EcoVillage? We took all of the work tasks that we had to create a village-scale agrarian eco-village in the forest in the mountains, which is a whole lot of work. We took all the tasks and clustered them into four areas. The things that have to do with physical in- infrastructure, like building buildings and building and maintaining roads, and we called that the Earth Orbo. Orbo, which is spelled strangely, O-R-G-B-O, but we just pronounce it Orbo. It means in a Nigerian language, it means a task group. But you can consider them just a cluster of related tasks that we have in a big uh, committee about those tasks. So we have the, the Earth one, which has to do with physical things for pretty obvious reasons. And then we have the Air one, which has to do with communication in every way. Internal communication, our minutes and documents, communicating with the outside world so we can set out classes and workshops and tours, our website so we can attract people to come and visit us and join our classes like uh, like how how you did Travis and um why we why we do that is to let people know who who we are and what we're doing and so that's in the air orbo the air section of of all of our work you could call it the air committees um and then and then fire is the whole and the spiritual well-being and the emotional well-being and there's just looking at the whole because you have to look at the whole, not just the parts. And the one called water has to do with the circulation of things that flow, money and our alternative currency and our trade and barter. So we use our alternative currency for buying objects and, and, and work. And so it's a form of, of the flow of, of value. So we have both um, our finance committee and our alternative currency committee in that sphere. So once again, earth, physical things, air, communication internally and externally, water, money and alternative currency, and uh, the, the amount of labor that we owe our community. And lastly, fire, which is the overview of everything and our spiritual well-being. We use a modified form of consensus for making decisions. And we use a, a similar thing to sociocracy's way of selecting people for roles to select people for roles for our annual officers. Are those selected from within the Orbo or do members from outside of the Orbo select members for the Orbo? How does that work? The whole community, all of our members, select the officers of our homeowners association. And the whole community selects the people who will be the focalizer, which is a term from Findhorn, which means like the committee chair, uh, for each Orbo. And we have little names for them, fire keeper, air spinner, water bearer, earth delver. We think those names are cool. And then they just serve kind of a leadership function for all the different committees of which there are more than one in each of these different orbos or larger committees. Um, Within any committee, the people in the committee choose whoever it is will have different roles in that committee. Each time we want to join a committee, we have to ask for their okay, and they have to say yes to us. They might say no if they've already got enough people, or they might say yes if they need more people. They might say yes if they really want us because we've got skills they could use. They might say no if we have a reputation for not getting along well with people. So the, the committees have autonomy in that way. 
One other question that we have is what are what are the role of global organizations in this groundswell of interest in intentional communities? You, you mentioned some already, but um, what function do they play? How have they evolved over the years? Well, I can think of three in the U.S. and one of them is international. So in 1990, some folks in Denmark funded and did research on what they called eco-villages, which was a term they'd heard here and there, but they also promoted the term. And they created a trust called the Gaia Trust to fund some research to write a book about eco-villages worldwide. And Robert Gilman and his wife at the time, she's no longer alive, but her name was Diane Gilman. Robert and Diane did the research, visited communities, wrote a book called Eco Villages and Sustainable Communities. It came out in 1991. It had Robert Gilman's now famous, I mean, Robert and Diane Gilman's now famous uh, description of eco villages, but it's more like an affirmation than a description because none of us are actually there yet. So it's more like an affirmation. Um, then, then those same people in Denmark started the Global Eco-Village Network, G-E-N or GIN for short, which now exists as GIN International. And there are regions of GIN. So I'm in the region called Jenna, which is GIN North America. There's a region in South America called, called Casa, which stands both in Spanish and in uh, Portuguese for something like Council of Associations of communities in something that starts with A. I don't actually know what it says, but CASA is the gen region in Latin America. Then there's gen Africa, gen Middle East, maybe it's called gen Fertile Crescent, and um, Genoa, which is uh, Oceania, Asia, and that's Australia and lots of Asian communities, uh, countries, I mean. Let's see. I think that, oh, gen Europe, of course. And so these organizations uh, provide information on websites and have conferences nowadays, online conferences, and uh, teach things to people that are interested uh, through each of the regions and through Gen International. So I'm on the board of directors of Gen USA, which is a country region. And uh, what we mostly do we haven't really done very much, but right now we uh, we acquired Communities Magazine when the FIC didn't want to publish it anymore. And so now we are the publishers of Communities Magazine, which we see as a good thing to do for communities in the U.S., though, though although we're about eco-villages and most of us that are on the board live in them and work to advocate them and so on. The magazine is about more different kinds of communities than just eco-villages. So then there are various national co-housing organizations. The U.S. has the Co-Housing Association of the U.S., known as COHO U.S. Canada has the, the Canadian Co-Housing Network. And co-housing is a, not like an eco-village, although a community can be both, and there are three worldwide that are both that I know of. Um, but co-housing is the fastest growing, most popular kind of community in the West. And it's much more mainstream than what you saw here at Earth Haven, Travis. But it's still like really, really accessible to people who have credit to get a mortgage for a bank loan to buy a unit in a co-housing community. And it provides people in a neighborhood, in a city or a town 
It provides them all kinds of more community than they'd ever get if they just lived in a neighborhood. So co-housing is one of my heroes. And it's, it's, more, it's more mainstream, but it's also not very mainstream, if you know what I mean. Living together with friends and you co-own the property and you have shared community dinners with your neighbors. Why? That's shocking. Uh, so co-housing is all over Europe and North America. And I actually visited one in Japan, which was very cool. It was called Kankan Mori, which means the wind, the sound of the wind coming through the trees. Um, another um, organization here in the U.S. is the Foundation for Intentional Community, FIC. They published the community's directory, which is now an online service of a website. It used to be print. Uh, they put on classes. And so they exist for all kinds of intentional communities. And they have a reach that's broader than the U.S. So that's how I'm involved with those three kinds of national and international organizations. Great. Well, we did some deep dives on sociocracy. We did some deep dives on what intentional communities mean within the community and the promise that they could hold outside. We understood that there's a global landscape of practitioners, inventors, and advocates just trying to build beautiful lives for themselves via community and that it's not easy for anybody. And we need uh, really robust governance tools and, you know, fantastic felt experiences between all of them to keep the dream alive and to continue to innovate on those experiments and, and build on the successes from the past. I agree. Thank you. Well, we'd like to extend our hearty thanks to you for joining us today and appreciate you sharing your decades of wisdom and knowledge around this and also just for building these, helping to build these examples and make them successful. Thank you for saying that. And um, thank you for doing what you're doing. May we all look at the world as though everything is sacred and see what happens. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. The Sacred Everything is brought to you with the generous volunteer assistance of our team. Dennis Pavluck is our technical wizard, philosophical gymnast, co-host, and editor of the podcast. Danya Trejo is the manager of our marketing, community, and design efforts, and also our head witch. I'm Travis Sheehan, the regenerative creator, systems magician, co-host, and belly laugh keeper of The Sacred Everything. 